I think when you think about smart manufacturing, right, you think about the connected factory, the amounts of data that's being produced. Really the value comes when you reimagine your work process end to end, step back and discuss what outcome are we trying to enable. The key component though is making sure that the right data is moving to the right people, the right stakeholders so that they can actually solve problems. That's what I see as the key enabler for a successful smart manufacturing application. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's time for another bonus episode. This week, we're exploring the characteristics of smart manufacturing leaders. You know, if you joined us last week, you know that this is part two of our two-part series focused on the smart manufacturing mindset. If you didn't tune in last week, don't worry. You'll still be able to follow along. But I do want to make sure everyone here is prepped for what's ahead, because this is not your traditional episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour. We have seven interviews lined up for you today from individuals that come from across the industry. Folks responsible for digital transformation at companies like PepsiCo and ExxonMobil. We have technology providers. We have folks from SESME, the Smart Manufacturing Institute, and the group you can thank for bringing us together to explore this central question. What is the smart manufacturing mindset? Now, normally our episodes feature one long interview, but this one is made up of shorter interviews with each of our seven guests that were recorded live at the 2023 Smart Manufacturing Experience in Greenville, South Carolina. This event was hosted by SESME and SME at this year's South Tech Conference, and the purpose of the Smart Manufacturing Experience is to enable educate and inspire manufacturers around emerging technologies, upskilling the workforce, and the promises of smart manufacturing. So in today's episode, we're putting a bit more of a leadership spin on the smart manufacturing mindset. What skills does a leader need to drive transformation? How much should they care about technology? And what foundational elements of smart manufacturing do they need to understand? We will answer all of these questions and more in today's episode. But before we begin, I do want to say there's a lot of info in this episode. So if you need to learn more, if you want to learn more, you can go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23. That'll take you straight to our most recent episodes around smart manufacturing, including this one. And also, if you want to join a community of manufacturing leaders that talk about these topics that we're discussing today, on a regular basis online. Well, hey, you should get yourself into the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. That group is based on LinkedIn. If you go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community, it'll take you right there. Shoot me a connection request. Send me a note saying, hey, I want to join, because that way I will have context when you put in a request to join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. It's a private group. It's for our most dedicated listeners, again, just go to manufacturinghappyhour.com community. It'll take you right there. 
Now, as we go through these interviews, I'll be sharing some of my takeaways after each of them and then some of my overarching takeaways at the end of the episode. But before we can get to the takeaways, we got to get into our interviews first. First up, this guest is no stranger to manufacturing happy hour. Jeff Winter is a senior director of industry strategy for manufacturing at Hitachi Solutions America, and he is an expert in all things digital transformation and manufacturing trends. He was on the podcast again not too long ago discussing AI, but today he's back to talk smart manufacturing and what I feel is the perfect starting point for today's series of interviews. Jeff, entering the rare club of a three-time manufacturing happy hour alumni. Welcome back. It's an exclusive club and I'm glad to be a part of it. I'm happy to have you as a part of it because I always have something new to ask you. And since we are here at uh, this event, my first question has to be, I'm asking everyone this one, what is your definition of smart manufacturing? And more importantly, how would you describe a smart manufacturing mindset? So I think it's a great question. I love the term smart manufacturing because it really just references the use of technology to improve the manufacturing process. What most people don't realize is that term and concept isn't new at all. It just changes flavors every so often. For example, if you were actually to look up the term smart manufacturing on Google's Ngram viewer, you would find out that the term was used more in the 1820s than it was all the way up until 1994 is when it took over again, which means the term has been talked about for centuries. It didn't mean the same thing then as it does now though, but the broad concept of using technologies to advance your, your manufacturing processes, it means the same thing. What makes it different now though is the fact that there are so many new technologies out there all coming together that you can make monumental improvements in your manufacturing more than you've ever been able to do before. And that is Industry 4.0, or the era that we're living in right now, is how to take advantage of all these technologies. Artificial intelligence, IoT, digital twin, cloud computing, edge computing, blockchain, you name it, collectively to increase your throughput, to increase your product quality, to optimize your efficiencies, to reduce your cost, to do all those things. So that's kind of my, my broad view of it. But a lot of people also use the term interchangeably with connected factory or agile factory or autonomous factory. And so here's the way I like to kind of differentiate those. A connected factory is kind of the precursor to a smart factory. It's all about just connecting machines and devices together that builds up to the capability of using intelligence uh, in a smart factory to do cool things that you haven't been able to do before, which can then lead to either an agile factory or an autonomous factory, where an agile factory focuses on quick response to market conditions and the ability to change your production process quickly. Autonomous factory talks about removing people from the processes and being able to do it without humans in the loop. So that's kind of where we're going as, as kind of a, um, the era that we're in right now with Industry 4.0. To get to your question about the mindset, I would say the, the smart manufacturing mindset really has four main components to it. Being agile, which is all about not speed, but being able to quickly respond to changes. And it could be changes in market conditions, changes in the company, changes in technology, whatever it is. So being agile. The next one is about being customer centric. One of the big things that is different with the era that we're living in now is the demand that customers are putting on the ability to, to change quickly what they want and to personalize what they want. It's your ability to put the customer at the center of the experience. The third is about being 
innovative. So innovation is more important now than it ever has been because of the technological changes occurring so quick. Those companies and people that have the right mindset to go, how can I use this technology to better my job, to better my process, or to better my organization, come out way ahead. Use ChatGPT as an example. Those companies that were innovative and had the right smart manufacturing mindset were able to start piloting right away versus the companies that didn't have the right mindset, they're still not even using it today. And the last one is being data-driven. There is so much data being produced out there that using data, leveraging it, it's non-negotiable. You have to do it to thrive in this area. There's too much data, and it's about being driven by using this data to make your decisions. So those are the four main ways that I would answer that question. There's a reason you're a three-time <laughs> alumni of this show, because you always give thorough answers. Now, I knew smart manufacturing was an old term. I didn't realize it was as old as you had mentioned. But to recap, so the four things that uh, make up that smart manufacturing mindset, agile, customer-centric, innovative, and data-driven. Excellent way to kick things off in this conversation. My next question is, since you have been on this show a couple times and we've done a couple interviews, I have to ask you, you know, today I'd like to approach things from your role with SESME. What have you learned from being on the advisory board to the Smart Manufacturing Executive Council at SESME? So as we all know, SESME is a part of Manufacturing USA and they play a significant role in, in accelerating smart manufacturing adoption across the country. And I've been actually working with SESME for a couple years because I believe in their mission, I like the things that they're working on, and I've been impressed with the outputs that they've been able to deliver so far. So I've been working more in an informal role, wanting to kind of help increase their awareness and kind of boost their message. More recently, yes, I joined as a smart manufacturing advisor to actually help them internally more with some of the, the subjects and topics that they focus on. That's different than their, their board of directors, which has more fiduciary responsibility. This is more on what topics should we be talking about. They just developed this Smart Manufacturing Executive Council. What should they be going over with them? What questions should they be asking them? How should they leverage the collective knowledge of that group to help shape the direction of what SESME works on? So that's kind of my, my role now. One of the biggest things I'm learning from it is some of the things that manufacturers are really looking for. It's very rare to have 50 manufacturers, you know, the leadership in a room together all talking about the challenges, the struggles, their desires, their wishes all at one point. So I'd say I'm more connected now with the what's actually happening in the manufacturing industry. And that's one of the biggest benefits I get by being a part of the this board with Sesame. Yeah, and, and when we've talked in the past, it's been everything from Industry 4.0 to more recently, AI, so I always like to kind of hear the latest and greatest from you in terms of what you're hearing, what you're seeing out there. What is the latest evolution or trend in how manufacturing leaders are approaching their smart manufacturing initiatives within their factories or enterprises that you've been seeing lately? So one of the things that, that I like to illustrate is that Industry 3.0 mainly dealt with production. If you look at the ISA 95 stack, it mainly dealt with the function of production or the function of manufacturing. Industry 4.0 expanded to the entire value chain of an organization. It started to touch many, many, many functions that production never really dealt with before. So one of the big changes that we're seeing is a shift in mindset of the organization for how to integrate production more into all the other functions of the company, whether it is supply chain, even sales, marketing, service. 
legal, finance, being able to, to tie it in together, because those companies that have a fully integrated ecosystem across the entire value chain thrive during this era that we're in right now, Industry 4.0. Now, the two biggest technologies that I'm seeing making a big impact in this are really IoT and AI. So Microsoft had their digital operations report that they came out with this year that talked about specifically the impact that IoT was making in digital operations. And one of the big things that they show is that 65% of organizations are now implementing an IoT strategy, which is quite high for a relatively new technology. Now with that though, one of the, the good benefits we're seeing is there's a 14% higher increase in successful implementations than we saw five years ago. So not only is more being done, but there's more success within it. Now one of the shifts that we're seeing is the do it yourself, build your own, versus the buy of platforms and, and off the shelf solutions that are out there. There's a big shift in that that we're seeing that just within two years we went from 9% buy to 30% buy and it's reducing the time to break even by 40% on some of these implementations. Because the more you can leverage systems that are tried, true, and tested, and applicable to your environment, the better it is for your organization to be able to adopt those. So that's, that's a massive thing that we're seeing there. We're also seeing to complement that, but talk bigger, is vendor ecosystems we're actually seeing. Because companies realize that industry 4.0 is just too darn big and there isn't one company that can do it all, not even close. So you're seeing most companies show up, even here, representing partnerships with other companies to show how together we're all able to transform the industry that we're in, the company that we're working with. And so these vendor partnerships, these vendor ecosystems that we're seeing is a shift in the way that people are approaching their, their improvement of their operations. And then lastly is AI. AI is just a super hot topic right now. And if you look at the amount that AI has gained attention since generative AI, it's, it's astronomical. What's funny is since ChatGPT came out, everyone's talking about AI. What most people don't realize is that one subject, ChatGPT, is actually causing an increase in all the other types of AI that you can use, whether it's for prediction, whether it's for analysis, whether it's for control, just because the topic has now reached so many more leaders in the company to go, what is our AI strategy? So we're seeing a huge adoption from that side. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at AI overall for the manufacturing function, World Economic Forum just came out with a white paper last week, two weeks ago, very recent, that talks about how it can improve production by over 20%. And 90% of companies are already starting to invest in this technology, but only 16% have started to see success. And it's usually because of a poor foundational effort in place to take advantage of this culturally and technologically. They're just, they're putting the cart before the horse and going, oh, AI, we got to do it before thinking through where and how to do it. So those are the, the two big trends we're seeing technologically, IoT kind of enabling a lot of this, and then AI being the, the technology on top that can take advantage of this data. And we're seeing the shift in kind of how companies are approaching Industry 4.0 to mean much more than just production. Well, I think in our conversations, it's very appropriate today that we're talking about like a mindset shift because I'm just going to highlight a couple things that shifted my mindset your comment about industry 3 uh, industry 3.0 being focused like on production and then moving outside the four walls of the factory when industry 4.0 came along looking more at the supply chain great way to differentiate between those two eras the other aspect you talked about 
having a higher success rate when it comes to these implementations around IoT as more people are buying off the shelf and there are more, let's say, partner ecosystems out there that are making it uh, happen. So that way people aren't having to go reinvent the wheel every time they try these things. So that makes a lot of sense. Then of course with AI, we've talked about that in depth before, but I think that point you made about, hey, because ChatGPT may be the most mainstream, well-known form of AI right now, it's starting to influence people to pay more attention to it and find other ways to leverage it. Awesome insights as always. We're going to leave with one more mindset question. Let's leave with the action for the audience. From your experience, what does it take to start adopting this smart manufacturing mindset? It's a great question. And really, more than anything, it takes a shift in organizational culture and values. You need, as an organization, to understand that technology can drive the future of business. And you need to look at it as the vehicle to get there. And the mindset is the fuel, is the way I like to, to okay. put it. So, the, yes, the technology is the vehicle, the mindset is the fuel. You need to build a culture of this mindset across the organization. And I would say one of the biggest ways is to start with your values and make sure that they include the things I'm talking about, being data-driven, being agile, being innovative. You need to be able to, to take these and build them into your values. If you can be innovative as a, as a company, I actually think that that's the most powerful one of all of them because innovation, not to be confused with invention, is something that every person in the organization can take advantage of. Get them thinking, how can I use, how can I apply technology to help my job, to help the process I'm working on, or to help the organization? You're going to find a bunch of collective wisdom within those people to help innovate at levels that you've never seen before. That will help your production, that will help your entire organization from a reducing cost, increasing profit, and even providing value differently to your customers. So if you start with changing the values, you will start to change the mindset. Mindset is the fuel. I can always count on you for a new analogy as well. Jeff, great having you back on. Thanks for demystifying smart manufacturing as I knew you would. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All right, so let's recapture some of the highlights from that interview with Jeff. Front of mind is one of his first comments that smart manufacturing is the use of technology to improve the manufacturing process. But now there are so many new technologies that are coming together that allow you to make monumental changes. As Jeff accurately described it, we're in the Industry 4.0 era where you can connect the entire value chain, not just manufacturing production, you can go beyond that, not only to supply chain, but finance, legal, services, sales, and marketing. I'll spotlight some other takeaways at the end of this episode, but one thing I didn't put as much attention to in the interview that I thought was cool was how Jeff differentiated between the connected factory being the precursor to a smart factory, but more importantly, that smart doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for everyone. Do you want an agile factory, one where you can change production quickly based on demand or market conditions, or do you want an autonomous factory where it can run with less humans in the loop? Last thing I'll say here is on the topic of smart manufacturing leadership. Jeff mentioned that leaders are asking, what is our AI strategy? Like a strong majority are doing this, but the 16% of companies that are actually seeing success are thinking of where and how to do it and have a technology and cultural foundation to be able to pull that off. We'll reflect on this conversation again a bit later, but next up we have Habib Kazi. Director of Innovation and Business Transformation at ExxonMobil. 
You know, this interview is really the one that inspired the title of this episode because it's all about leadership and smart manufacturing. Let's get into it. Habib, what would you say your definition is for smart manufacturing? And maybe more importantly, how would you define the smart manufacturing mindset? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, obviously there are many different definitions, but to me the simple one is stepping back and reimagining the end-to-end -end work that we do, taking advantage of data and digital enablement to do it better, faster, and to make better decisions. Uh, to me, that's the most common sense answer that makes sense. And the mindset of that is the beginning of what I just said. Uh, people normally go after individual spot solutions, you know, what I sometimes describe as random acts of digital. Yeah. But really the value comes when you reimagine your work process end to end, step back and discuss what are we trying to do, what decisions are we trying to make, what outcome are we trying to uh, enable, and then take advantage of the technology available to do it better, not look for use cases for technology within the, the same old work process. Excellent point. We're always about look at the problem you want to solve first rather than looking at the technologies that you could apply to a situation. Honestly, the thing that stuck out in that answer was stepping back and reimagining the process. Don't necessarily look at it as, hey, this is what it is today, so it's got to look like something like this tomorrow with a little bit more technology and throughput, but really look back and say, hey, where do we want to be? So my next question is, you were on Sesame showed the smart manufacturing mindset. You were on in, in one of their webinars in, I believe, April 2023. And you referred to smart manufacturing as a leadership exercise, not a digital exercise. What are the characteristics of a smart manufacturing leader? Yeah, so, so a smart manufacturing leader has to be aware enough of the possibilities to have a bigger ambition than let's just deploy some digital solutions to make incremental gains. So to me, a truly enlightened digital leader doesn't fully understand how to do it, but understands enough to step back mm -hmm. and look at the end-to-end -end work process and ask the right questions to the right people who know how the technology can enable and improve those work processes. And uh, in my experience, the companies that have achieved the best outcome from transformation are the ones where senior leaders actually were completely bought into it. They didn't have the solution, but they knew what questions to ask, and they knew how to paint an ambition that was much more significant than let's go make some incremental dollars. Yeah, I like that You know, there's an element of the last answer in there. A leader for smart manufacturing is someone that is able to take that step back. Another question I have for you, and you mentioned this right at the start of our conversation, how do you avoid random acts of digital or pilot purgatory? Two different things, but how do you avoid some of these pitfalls I feel like people end up in when they're pursuing a smarter manufacturing operation? Yeah, I think certain amount of ground up innovation is good, but you want to really step back and understand what problems are we trying to solve and how can I take advantage of those solutions at scale? Um, you know, and taking advantage at scale really means you have to step back and not do pilots. I'm a big fan of uh, what McKinsey call lighthouses. Yeah. And the difference in my mind is it's semantic, but it's very important. A pilot is tactical use of tools to try something. A lighthouse is solving a holistic problem 
and done properly, that lighthouse becomes a beacon that draws others in to scale up. Okay. And so the technique I use more often than anything else at my work is I use lighthouses to demonstrate the value very quickly, agile approach, take three months, demonstrate a minimum viable product that's unlocking a lot of value and let that draw in all the other sites who say, well, I want that now because that's really interesting and it's going to solve a problem for me that, that's uh, interesting and relevant. I'm going to remember that answer for a while because I've heard about pilot purgatory and pilots all the time, but I think the way you define that to me makes very clear sense. Pilot is a tactical, hey, let's try out some technology, let's see how it works, versus a lighthouse, which admittedly is a new term I've just been hearing over the course of the past year. But a lighthouse is more like taking that step back and looking at the holistic problem and being like, how do we solve this? So my last question for you then is, innovation and transformation involve evolving the way people work. So what tips do you have for breaking the status quo, particularly in a large organization, you work within a large organization, how do you show people what's possible? Yeah, and, and you know that's a very tricky uh, journey for a leader because you don't want to be someone who's lecturing people, mm -hmm. you are uninformed, this is the way to do it. People resist because there's a reason, so you have to listen as much as talk, and listening why they're resisting you know, part of it could be because they're a product of their journey, and in their journey over 20, 30 years, they never did anything digital. Mm -hmm. uh, or they could be that there were, they have me issues. Well, you know, I don't know how to do this. Am I going to lose my job if I enable it? Or, um, or just lack of general awareness of, of this topic, so they don't want to look uh, uninformed. So being very empathetic sitting down one-on-one -on -one rather than in groups, bringing lighthouses and external use cases where this has worked, um, to show them the way is very powerful. And the other technique I use is I, I find examples outside of our industry where transformation has taken hold and I take leaders um, who might otherwise hesitate to those types of assets to take a look. Look what they've done. This is not exactly what you do, but these concepts apply. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to try? Let's do a lighthouse. And if we do a lighthouse, and if the lighthouse is successful, your commitment must be that we scale up. Okay, otherwise we don't do a lighthouse for the sake of a lighthouse. And, and that's the collaboration and the partnership. And, like and it's, it's working. Yeah, no, setting the onus, setting the expectation that, hey, we're only doing a lighthouse if we're going to scale afterwards because the reality of doing a lighthouse is it is something that can be scalable. Just one more final question then because you mentioned the importance of looking at other industries which I totally agree with. Since we have a manufacturing audience listening to this, what would you recommend is like another industry or two that people should be looking at for examples of where there are successful transformations taking place? Do any pop to, come to mind? Yeah, I, I think um... You don't have to go outside of manufacturing, but you go outside of your sector, Got right? It, so for example, if I'm in oil and gas, I recently took some of my colleagues to see consumer packaged goods. Mm. Um, soaps being made, uh, soft drinks being bottled, and look how they do it and how that is so much yeah. different than how we do it. 
And if we took some of those learnings and applied it at our business, we'd do these things better. So you, know, you don't have to go to uh, you know, a two-sided marketplace on the web, yeah. which is yeah. maybe a bridge too far for those who aren't up to speed yet. Yeah. Eventually, you can take them there because there are some interesting nuggets, but you have to be deeper into it before you go that far. But within, within manufacturing, different sectors, I think works very well. Excellent, I like how you reeled that in to make it even, you know, hey, you're looking at different industries, different verticals, keeping it similar, but different and looking at the, the best practice they're using in those spaces. So, Habib, I really appreciate you taking us through this today. Thanks so much for jumping on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Cheers. My pleasure. Okay, so smart manufacturing leaders need to be able to take a step back and take advantage at scale. That's the idea of a lighthouse versus a pilot, and I'll tell you what, that whole tactical versus holistic differentiation was incredibly helpful for me. Hopefully it was helpful for you too. Habib and I actually kept chatting after the interview, and it goes back to one of the things Habib said in his final answer. The biggest resistance to change or transformation is not because people are difficult, it's because, you know, they just don't know. The uncertainty, questions like, hey, what's going to happen to my job? He said that you need to listen and understand why someone is resistant, and that starts breaking down barriers. It goes back to one of our common themes in these two episodes. A transformation needs to be embraced by the whole organization. Next, we're going to talk to another end user that's really bringing smart manufacturing to life. Rick Van Dyke is the Senior Director of Supply Chain Engineering at PepsiCo. I'm pretty sure you know what our first question is by now, so let's jump in and hear it straight from Rick. Well, what I think about with smart manufacturing is more really about the capabilities that smart manufacturing brings to operations in the business in order to kind of run your manufacturing operations. And I think of capabilities, you know, like error proofing, where the systems are self-correcting uh, and kind of running on their own, or, you know, and, and I think a lot about automated uh, uh, manufacturing systems. So I think about those systems that help drive the performance of the automation, whether, automa whether it's through autom automatically or through uh, providing good data and insights to help the, the manufacturing operations improve performance. So my next question then is, you work for PepsiCo. What is PepsiCo's definition? What does PepsiCo think of smart manufacturing? I think that's evolving, okay. you know, over the years. Uh, um, when I joined PepsiCo, we were into a large automation um, push. We had a very manual operation, so, um, and I had a background, you know, with a lot of smart manufacturing type capabilities, so we included those capabilities in the automation agenda. Yeah. So, so um, you know, and it, it was something that was a long journey with that automation and need to be per persistent. So I think that started to define what smart manufacturing for PepsiCo looked like. Um, we've uh, made a long way and, and had a, a couple of different IT projects and have a lot of foundational capabilities installed across our plants. But I think as you see, you know, in this day and age with all the tools and technology and digital, and what does digital mean to people, you know, kind of in their own lives, that's starting to involve what people think what smart manufacturing is. And so we've got other groups that are digital type groups or IT that are bringing some perspectives of that that's a little bit different, which makes it interesting. But, uh, you know, I think what, it's, what we're finding is that it is gonna, those new tools and technology are offering uh, the ability to solve some pieces of the digital journey that we weren't able to solve before. So it's gonna work well, you know, with whatever we've already been doing in smart manufacturing. 
What I really like about your answer, and maybe surprised me a little bit, is that you mentioned people are seeing digital in their daily lives. And I think there was a point in time where we weren't thinking, oh, our factory, our facility should be like my life is outside of this factory, right? It's like, well, you know, it's, it's hard here at work. We've got these, this old technology, but you know, at home I got my iPhone and things like that, right? I'm glad to hear, at least what I think I heard you say was that that outside perspective, it's like, well, I have this at home. I should like have something like user-friendly at work as well that gives me the information, allows me to make good decisions and take quick action at work. Did I hear that right? Yeah, I think um, what you find is the younger generations, is that's all they've ever had yeah. in their lives. You know, they come to work and they, why wouldn't I have, you know, kind of that capability, you know, here at work as well. Yeah. So uh, there are some challenges, though. You know, you think about those and what you do with, you know, kind of your phone and everything. And there's a lot of scale to it because everybody's doing it. So you can kind of develop the technology and you get a billion people, you know, that get to use it. When yeah. you start to look at supply chain, you know, we have the physics of things, you know, in our supply chain. And there's all the, the software and application over the years that have grown up to help drive your supply chain operation. So, and the scale of the users is way, way, way smaller than us as personal. So, so it takes time to really, you know, be able to, to develop, you know, that kind of experience, you know, for the, for the employees that's more holistic that way. Um, so they tend to find, they have some tools and technologies, but they're a little bit siloed and maybe not as uh, user friendly as what they're used to. So that's like the next phase of the journey is starting to, change the experience that they have. Okay. Almost like the, the tools and the technology won't really change that much, but the experience you know, is what needs to change. What I love about that is you're not focused specifically on the tools and technology. Like you just said, you're focused on the experience. And I think that's what I hope manufacturers take away from this interview. It's like, hey, tools and technology make it happen, but you gotta keep the experience front of mind. I, I wanna get your perspective as a supply chain guy on this next question. Does digital, does supply chain have the most to gain from digital transformation as opposed to other departments like finance, engineering? And this is a kind of a world according to Rick question. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's a little bit back what we already hit on, which was the personal experience, yeah. you know, with the digital. So think about, you know, your own experience and what has what it impacted it? Well, you get advertisements, you know, to you, come to you for what you think you need that then drives you to something you want to buy. So, yeah. so I really think, you know, marketing and sales are on the forefront, you know, of these digital technologies. All right. So that was another end user perspective that we just heard from Rick. I will say there's more to this conversation and you'll definitely want to check out these full video interviews through SESME. Or head over to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23 to catch a great summary from these episodes. As we kept going, Rick also offered tips on working with SESME. Not only that they help demystify the technology, but that they can help provide a roadmap that really builds out a digitized, data-driven organization. Lastly, along the lines of our conversation with Habib, Rick also emphasized the importance of understanding what you want to achieve. He specifically mentioned this in the context of how to overcome hurdles when a large enterprise gets stuck in their smart manufacturing journeys. Take a look back at what you're trying to achieve to overcome those roadblocks. 
Next up, we have another Rick. Rick Bulata has impacted the automation and IoT space more than you may realize. First of all, he was the co-founder and CTO of Thingworks, which was bought by PTC, and he also worked with Wonderware, SAP, and Microsoft, leaving these organizations on more than one occasion to start his own thing again and again. So, this conversation is just as much about startups and breaking out on your own as it is about our typical subject matter for these episodes. Anyway, Rick's an impressive guy, so let's hear what he has to say about the smart manufacturing mindset. I should also say that this conversation sounds a bit more like it was recorded at a trade show, but don't mind the background noise. That just means you know it's all real. Rick, I feel like I could ask you dozens, hundreds of questions based on the limited amount I know about your career, but I've, I've done a little bit of research, and you have a, an illustrious background, but we'll start the way we've been starting all these interviews. What is your definition of smart manufacturing, and what does it mean to have a smart manufacturing mindset? Good question. I mean, obviously, you're probably getting 10 different definitions from That was kind of the hope. People. Yeah, looking for some overlap, looking for some unique elements as well. Sure. I mean, for me, smart is smart everything, right? It's, I think a lot of us focus on making the equipment smart. Um, it's making people smarter. It's making our processes smarter. It's making the products we produce smarter. Um, you'll see a lot of people will talk about it being very data-driven, right? as if it's something new. I mean, you, you've been around this long enough to know we've been collecting mass amounts of data in this space for a very long time. I think now the transition is how can we use it to do something? The other dimension, of course, is you're gonna hear a lot about AI. And similarly, we've been leveraging it in very simple ways like machine vision and so on. Now we're starting to do some more advanced things to assist operators and to uh, close loop control with AI. So. For me, it's just an aggregate of lots of really interesting technologies to help us do things better. So when did you first start coming across the term smart manufacturing in your career, and what was the context? That's a great question. I actually can't answer that question. Okay. But, uh, I, we've all used so many different, that's a challenge in our sure. space, right, <laughs> is defining those. Um, I would actually say, probably SESME, maybe when I got involved with SESME, I, I heard that term front and center. Okay. Roughly what year was that, or what year were like so maybe two or three years ago? Two or three years ago. Okay, so relatively new when you started hearing it come in vogue. Realize I've been around long enough for the term computer integrated manufacturing sim to have been a thing. Okay, so. all right, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Well, because you've been around for a while, I was looking at your career background, and the first question I have to ask is, did you leave Wonderware twice to go found manufacturing software companies that changed the game? So, Actually, I left three times, okay. and uh, the first two times I left, I had been traveling quite a bit for work, and my wife was pregnant within about a month. Both times I left right. Wonderwear, I was very nervous leaving the third time, but uh, um, actually, I, the, the last time to start ThingWorks, I had just left SAP, where we'd been doing a lot of research work around, essentially connected everything. Um, but basically, it was seeing a gap, right? And the, and my, uh, the Lighthammer stuff was we saw the growth of SCADA and Historians. Um, every customer I encountered had just a mixed bag of so many different products and solutions and homegrown stuff. It's like, how can you tie all that together? So very, I, I've learned um, different companies have a different appetite for kind of internal innovation. Similar situation uh, at SAP. When I joined there after Lighthammer was acquired, uh, it became obvious that to do something kind of n truly novel, 
you kind of need to be outside of the big co environment, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what led to ThingWorks. So you mentioned you saw a gap when you went to found Lighthammer. Yep. What what gave you enough confidence to leave Wonderware to go do that to create Lighthammer software development? Like, what was your vision? That's a great question, and, and I think we actually have official term we've used at both companies called bridge functionality. And what bridge functionality is, what is it? Yeah, we're building flying cars, or we're building some amazing thing. But what's the functionality that we know customers need and can buy today? At the time, that was. I want to be able to visualize all of my information from all my different systems, and ideally I can do that remotely. Internet technologies were just starting to hit, you know. So I kind of felt pretty confident that providing you know, uh, these new kinds of visualization would be a good starting point. Um, plus I had, to be honest, the other big benefit was I had I'd been on the sales side for a number of years, okay. so I had good relationships with the distribution channel. Um, and all my work in advisory stuff, uh, it, a, a pattern's pretty common is go-to-market's the hardest part. A lot of people create great products. We had a little bit of a head start because we had those kind of uh, uh, go-to-market relationships. Okay. So then you mentioned you, you left Wonderware on more than a few occasions to start a company. So what I want to know is, since you did this multiple times, you went on to found ThingWorks in 2008, leaving Wonderware again. What did you do differently when you created ThingWorks? Like, think about the lessons learned from the first soiree of creating a company. I mean, there's the, the natural, uh, yeah, uh, almost 10 years of technology evolution. So, kind of fundamentally different, web first, you know, very different architectural approach. Um, but I think the big difference, uh, and this came out of the work we were doing at SAP, um, which incidentally, uh, that team, that research team, led to a lot of what we call Industry 4.0. Okay. It was a, I had a German-based team that was doing a lot of these projects. We had something we called real-world awareness, and that was what happens when you can integrate the physical world with healthcare and manufacturing and public safety and security, and it was pretty clear there weren't any software products to make that easy. Um, so that was kind of the, all right, there's an opportunity here, someone's got to fill that gap. Um, and then the difference between kind of industrial IoT, connecting up all of our PLCs and SCADA, all the stuff for MES, but then the broader IoT, connecting up these, when we talked at the very beginning, as the products become smart, as the product, the, the compressor out in the field is, you know, beaming data back, the filling machine is, you know, is being monitored and optimized by the OEM, kind of new kinds of business models for um, connected products as well. So I have an, a question for like the audience out there. Based on your experience, what advice do you have for manufacturing leaders that want to transform your businesses or ask a different way, more relative to your background, what advice do you have for manufacturers on seeing what's possible rather than just what's been done before? That's right. You know, it's a, a, you're a great segue because we hear a lot about salespeople saying, um, sit down with your customers, ask the customers always right, ask them what their problems and opportunities are. And in my experience, that doesn't actually work very well. Um, it's a human thing that we bound our responses by what we think the art of the possible is. So even if there is some solution out there that can solve it, if they're not aware of it. Um, so uh, facilitating those discussions with customers to really get down to the root of what their, their real opportunities and problems are. Um, and it has to be a facilitated discussion. 
Um, the other thing that's always been front and center for me is your people. I mean, I just passionately believe that the knowledge of your people, um, using technology to make your people more capable, um, to empower them, to listen to them, um, that's got to be at the root of your digital transformation. Uh, you, can't, you can't top down this kind of stuff. And in fact, there's a lot of insights and brilliance you're missing out on if you're not uh, speaking to the people on the floor. Okay, so Rick put a couple different spins on some common themes we've talked about in these interviews, or I should say different focuses, if you will. Rick highlighted the importance of not assuming customers know exactly what they want when it comes to transformation. That requires coaching. And he also brought it back to the impact on the people right there at the end. Next up in our interviews is Sanjeev Haida, a principal industry consultant for the IoT division at SAS Institute. SAS specializes in analytics, so that is going to be a big part of this conversation. Sanjeev's got past experience with big names in the industry and a great story to illustrate smart manufacturing with one of the companies that SAS has worked with in this space. Let's get into his definition of smart manufacturing and then the mindset that goes along with it. I think when you think about smart manufacturing, right, you think about the connected factory, the amounts of data that's being produced, right? You have existing data sets that are in, you know, maybe silos, different locations. You're starting to get new types of data available, right? With IoT, for those not on the familiar in the podcast, Internet of Things devices, you have connected workers, et cetera. And really with smart manufacturing is how do you take all that information, collate it together to derive new insights of things that you may not have been able to do before. But really, smart manufacturing is not just about to take all that data together for the sake of doing it. You really are looking at how do you solve business challenges that you're facing today with new methods and techniques that you may not, may not have been able to do previously. And so when you think about the mindset, for me personally, right, I'm very uh, grounded on business objectives and use cases, like what are you trying to do? So when you think about smart manufacturing, use cases could be like asset availability and predictive maintenance, which is near and dear to my heart. I focus a lot on my career on that. It could be improving product yield and quality. A new one that we're seeing in the last few years is uh, energy optimization, right? Trying to do the same using less energy. And so regarding the, the mindset, right? When you have this in, you're grounded with your objectives. You want to think big, right? You want to know what your final goal is but then you're gonna to wanna to start small because you can't start investing $100 million, go all out from the beginning. So start small, show some success, you know, re, uh, re, or use that and like a momentum that you get from that success to continue to build more and more. When you think about starting small, where right, you already have existing data sets and information that you may be able to take advantage of, okay. you might wanna start introducing some new things like either new tools, workflows, uh, technology. So I'm part of SaaS and we focus a lot on analytics and machine learning. Mm -hmm. So how we can use that to unlock value. So I think the key thing there is just being understanding like it's an evolving landscape, right? You want to do things, but you also need to show success and then build on that momentum. So a number of helpful things that I took away from that answer. One of the, one of the first ones I'll highlight is I liked how you suggested to not only start small, right? And look for some of those immediate wins. Mm -hmm. I like how you mentioned the need to, hey, look where some of your existing data sources are. You don't necessarily need to create a bunch of new data. You might have some of that in your facility already. 
that you're not already using. That's right. The other thing I want to go into a bit more is you talked about use cases. You gave some good examples there. And I want to ask you in your current role, when did you first start encountering an organization applying the idea of smart manufacturing? Sure, absolutely. For those on the, the podcast listening, if you're not familiar, I'm with SAS. I'm a principal industry consultant within our Internet of Things division. And so I have uh, the opportunity to engage with customers and organizations across multiple verticals, including uh, manufacturing, right, and how to leverage analytics to uncover value. And so one of the first encounters I have with uh, smart manufacturing is one of our customers, Georgia Pacific. Okay. And so I was fortunate to you know, engage with them early on, showcase SaaS technology, and how they can use that to, what their focus was deploy um, streaming analytics to be able to identify potential issues of their asset um, health, of, of their process, uh, you know, working and so forth, and then just be able to showcase that. And the reason, you know, I bring that example up because it was so impressive was, you know, we, we show them how to do it right, we gave them examples and so forth, but they saw the power of what they can do on their own, right, because they had long times to de uh, deploy and get their analytics out, how they can use SaaS technology to do so, how fast they can you know, iterate through. It was a team sport. We were working both with the data scientists and the remote operations engineers. And once we gave them the templates, they just went off running, deploying you know, hundreds of models, experimenting and so forth, which is great for me because you know, when you think about these use cases, you're not going to be 100% correct on day one. Right, but you got to be a little fearless. You got to try things out. May not be great, but then how do you re like iterate and learn on those uh, on those experiences? And so where GP is today, when you see their success, right, they're able to use SaaS analytics for IoT. They have over 16,000 models running in their production system. They have um, increased their OEE by 10% and reduced their unplanned downtime by 30%. I love that. I love a good specific example. Georgia Pacific's very well known. Now let's go a step further. What's something that you learned from this particular experience that's helping you in your current role now as you do more of this? I think the thing I appreciate more now, especially working with Georgia Pacific and other uh, organizations, is that manufacturers are in different journeys in their process, right? It's not a one size fits all, like you have to do this approach, right? Because you may have certain team structures, organizations, skill sets, you may have certain data, you may not, you may have different business objectives. And so when you think about how would you approach like implementing some of these technologies, like in, with our focus of analytics, you may want to try to do everything in-house, build everything up from the ground, which is perfectly fine, but it may take you longer to get there. Larger organizations may do that. If you're a middle manufacturer, middle size, you may want to partner, right, to help you accelerate your journey to get there, right, to help augment your staff. Or some might, you know, small middle manufacturers might look for an application or software as a solution to be able to implement these things and so that they can take advantage of the outcomes, right, with minimal investment without maintaining it. And I think the thing I appreciate more is that People are in different stages, right, in different needs. Mm -hmm. And it's important, you know, especially as us as a vendor for analytics, is to understand where organizations are, what will resonate with them, and try to meet their objectives. Not just saying, hey, this is the blueprint, like GP did it this way, everybody must do it that way. I think that's the, the power of just, you know, working with such organizations and hearing their appreciation of where they are. 
Well, let's um, let's reflect on this experience one more time because you've had a good amount of background in mm -hmm. this industry. So how did you leverage your previous experience in this effort as well? Absolutely. So I mentioned predictive maintenance is near and dear to my heart. So before I've been with SAS for five years, prior to that, I was with General Electric mm -hmm. in their power division where I was part of the analytics team responsible for developing analytics to um, provide predictive maintenance capabilities for their heavy duty power generation equipment. Mm -hmm. So you think of gas turbines, steam turbines, generators, the importance of those, like if those assets go down, right, the amount of uh, power that's lost, can you replace that? How sensitive that could be to the uh, grid operations. And the thing that made me appreciate, like I was doing that for 10 plus years, and the thing that stuck out to me was, you know, we can develop the analytics, I can make the best thing you know, in the world, but if it doesn't follow like an end-to-end -end process, like there's gotta be devices to collect the data, that we've gotta prepare it, we need you know, the IT folks, the OT folks, we need to be able to create the analytics to run and be able to provide that value in real time, but then also how is it consumed and how is that value being generated mm -hmm. to alert power operators, hey, you have a potential issue, here's our recommendations, just seeing that full end-to-end -end value chain, right, is a really important piece that people shouldn't dismiss, right? It is a team sport, and you're just trying to fit in, because even some of the analytics, I know working with some uh, organization, they might say, hey, I have the best analytics, R-square is one, which I'm sure a lot of people say that's not possible. But it's really about how do you drive the right outcomes and values to, to show that. And I think that's what got institutionalized with me from my GE experience, and I bring to my customers uh, at SAS. You know, I think it's great that we went from Rick, who ended on the human side of smart manufacturing, where a lot of Sanjeev's focus and experience was around advanced analytics and predictive maintenance. How are you getting the most out of your assets? Can you get more out of them? Do you need to replace them? At the end of the day, smart manufacturing focuses on all of these things, making your equipment and operations better, making your people better. It's not an either or, it's a yes and. By the way, just a quick reminder that you can connect with Sesme and access all of our full interviews by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23. Now, as we continue to shuffle along through these interviews, we are at one final crossroads. We started these discussions by covering some of the trends with Jeff, we had a couple interviews with end users and then with technology providers. Now it's time to hear from the U.S. Department of Energy. Sudarsan Rachuri is a federal program manager at the DOE, and in this interview, we're going to learn a bit more about how SESME works as a public-private partnership and how the Department of Energy justifies and creates groups like SESME to drive innovation with the people and industry that need to be innovating. I don't want to give too much away yet, so let's get this one started. Excellent. In three, two, one. Sudarsan, I'm starting all these interviews with the same question. I know you have perspectives on this. So what is your definition of smart manufacturing? And more importantly, how do you describe a smart manufacturing mindset? Okay, that's a good question. Actually, smart manufacturing should be defined that fits your mission. It, there is no de-definition for smart manufacturing, but to simply define it in non-technical terms, it's about how to make informed decisions from end to end using data. 
So that's the whole purpose of that smart manufacturing. And if you want to take out smart, smartness in that, is basically taking the digital technologies and digitalization of not only product process and resources, but also the business process, so end to end, so that you can make informed decision based on actual data coming from the system. So the common theme I've been hearing so far is around having data, and like you said, to make informed decision. But I do like the spin you put on it where you talk about how smart manufacturing needs to fit your particular mission. Smart manufacturing at factory A isn't necessarily going to be the same thing as it is at enterprise B, for example. So I have to ask you, since you're the SESME liaison from the Department of Energy, can you shed some light then on how an organization like SESME works with the federal government? Because this is going to be a perspective that I think you'll be able to share most uniquely. Yes. The reason that we set up these kind of institutes is to create innovation ecosystem. That's why we created it as public-private partnership. So the government funds something and then the private also put some money, not all cash, but cost share. So before getting into the actual operations, how it is done and what is the mission that we are trying to get. Sure. Going back to your previous question, I want to touch on one thing. So digitalization and how it fits your organization. So there are four focus of smart manufacturing. Product focus, meaning how you want to produce your product right the first time. So you are producing quality products right the first time, meaning you are reducing waste. So because of that, you are increasing your productivity, labor productivity, everything. The second one is process focus. How are you optimizing processes for everything, starting from material, water, energy, everything. And all the assets that you have for manufacturing, the product realization, the machines, machine tools and everything, how are you optimizing that? Okay. And the third is the resource, that how do you connect water, energy and material and increase the productivity of that. And then finally, you have to bring in at the supply chain level. So this is why, as you exactly said, and Enterprise A, how they implement and deploy smart manufacturing will be different yeah. from Enterprise B. So going to your second question again, how DOES started this, supposed to be modeled after Fraunhofer Institutes in uh, Germany. So the idea is to create innovation ecosystem, not only for large players, but small medium enterprises. Nearly 95% of suppliers to OEMs or SMEs. So the SMEs play an important role. If you don't take tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers along with you in the digital journey, OEMs cannot do that. Yeah. So that's the first thing. In uh, second thing we are looking at, because we are Department of Energy, we are looking at energy as a, one of the important factor for reducing energy cost and indirectly reducing emissions because you're, you're using less energy. Mm -hmm. So in all of that, we have not touched yet is how to bring in people along. The skills, skills development, education, curriculum development, training the trainers. So my role at DOE to work with them is to make sure that they are taking the right decisions, both at the technical level and also the operational level, and making sure that they are 
creating innovations, not just you know, having some projects, that's important, right. but you have to create some technology along with that. So what I heard, you talk about an, innov uh, an innovation ecosystem, and it's not like we're creating this out of thin air. Germany's already done something like this. So I feel like that's looking at it from a broader perspective than from the Department of Energy perspective. You, you do look specifically at energy. But what I thought was a nice common thread between the two is then you say, how do you bring people along for this? Because whether you're focused on an energy initiative or whether you're focused on creating that innovation ecosystem, you need to have people along for that ride. So before I talk about SESME a bit more, I want to quickly highlight a couple of my takeaways from that conversation. Smart manufacturing should fit your mission. I heard that loud and clear. I also like Sue Darson's four focuses of smart manufacturing. Product, like as in quality, increasing productivity. Number two, process and optimization. Number three, resources, how you're using or conserving materials and wages. And then finally, supply chain. But overall, what was most unique about this conversation was the deeper dive into SESME and how and what they're doing to solve industry-wide problems. They get stakeholders together to figure out what the priorities are, and the Department of Energy creates and renews these institutions. SESME has been going for almost a decade now, and the DOE recently created CIMANI, the Cybersecurity Manufacturing Innovation Institute. Makes sense. Anyway, we're sticking with the SESME crew as our last guest is Olivia Morales, Solutions Architect at SESME. This last interview is actionable. If you are looking for some great steps on how to get started with smart manufacturing, well, you have come to the right place. Olivia, first question, everyone's question, the common question for everyone in this series of interviews is, what is your definition of smart manufacturing and how would you define the smart manufacturing mindset? That's a good question because I feel like smart manufacturing has so much to do with the mindset with which you approach any problem in the manufacturing space. So it's just as much the technology, the solutions, as it is the education and the thought process around how to get started. So the Key component though is making sure that the right data is moving to the right people, the right stakeholders, so that they can actually solve problems. That's what I see as the key enabler for a successful smart manufacturing application. Data's been a common answer, but that's one of the more people-centric answers around data that, that we've gotten in these interviews. You know, I feel like a topic that doesn't get talked about enough in smart manufacturing is reusability of architectures as an example. We haven't really gotten into that yet. What advice do you have for manufacturing leaders so that they don't like reinvent the wheel where they don't have to? Right. The fundamental component of a reusable architecture is information models and open standards driven APIs and technologies. So anything that is open, is reusable. Um, an API means that multiple applications can be built against the same application. A common information model means that your data has context early and you have access to it with the right meaning. And so, for example, 
on a PLC program, there's going to be tags that are named in a variety of ways. The person who wrote the PLC program is going to have intimate knowledge of that data. Um, but that's not repeatable without an information model that can be applied and, and proliferated across the smart manufacturing architecture. So quick recap then, common information models and open APIs, those are, that's how you get the reusability of architectures. Standards driven. Yeah. All right. So when is the right time for an executive within, or that has a transformational vision to start looking at technologies and architectures, et cetera, like the ones we're discussing? Like how do you avoid putting the cart before the horse? Since we really talk about how, oh, what's the right word for it? Like your earlier answer where data's got to be going to people, right? We got to be focused on people and processes and technology seems to come last a lot of times. So I'm just trying to figure out the right order. I think having that vision is, and being willing to take on this problem um, is fundamental. So great first step is I recognize that I need a transformation. I have a, the beginnings of a vision, don't know how to execute it. How do I execute it? So. That, I would say, is part of the smart manufacturing mindset. We know that we need to change something. The next set of steps can feel overwhelming wherever possible. Uh, I think that you should leverage your institutes like SESME to put you in contact with the right people, get you on the right path. Um, the next step is thinking about where there's opportunity for incremental changes. Um, most environments, most plants that exist in manufacturing are brownfield. We don't have a lot of greenfield, and in many ways a brownfield application is one of the easier places to start because there are some set constraints and known problems that are trying to be addressed. Um, yeah, that, that next step is get in contact with the right people and look for what I mentioned before around reusability and open standards. Start leveraging things that you know you're going to be able to reuse. So have the vision, leverage institutes, because the next steps can be overwhelming like yeah. we're talking about. Look for incremental changes, largely within brownfield spots, and then again, tap into the right people so that you have that reusability so you're not reinventing the wheel. So last question then is, now that you've been with SESME for a while, what's been the most optimistic outcome for how SESME is changing the industry? I have been really encouraged to see the level of collaboration happening between manufacturers internally, between manufacturers and technology providers, between and technology providers too, um, companies that would otherwise be competitors mm -hmm. coming together to solve some of these common problems. Um, I think that through that collaboration there's been this recognition that if we want to elevate the industry, if we want to achieve smart manufacturing, we need to work together to make that happen. And that is how technology gets developed. I mean, in the computer science and software space, open source has been fundamental for a really long time. And we're also starting to see that in, uh, in manufacturing as well. So collaboration isn't just putting the right people in the right room which it absolutely is. It's also connecting people to the code, the solutions, the technology that they need to accelerate their solutions. With all the information and sometimes noise that's out there around smart manufacturing, I really like how you've broken it down 
into some very easy steps on how to get started, where you're seeing success with Sesame. Thank you for making that so digestible for us. Olivia, really appreciate you having me on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Thank Thanks so much. Cheers. Hey, first things first, I gotta say I loved that breakdown from Olivia on how to get started. It's not just about when to leverage architectures, it's about the process of smart manufacturing in general. I'll get back to this more in just a second as I share some final takeaways from this episode, but first, hey, thanks for listening to this two-part episode about all things smart manufacturing. If you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash smartmfg23. That'll take you to both pages for these episodes, plus links to Sesme and ways to connect with all of our guests. So like I did during the last episode, I'm going to share a few of my biggest takeaways from these conversations. This time I have four of them all geared towards smart manufacturing leaders. First, Jeff's four aspects early in the interview, his four aspects of smart manufacturing mindset. One aspect is agility, being able to adapt to changes in market conditions and demand. Another is customer centricity, creating that personalized experience. Third is being innovative, leveraging tools like ChatGPT now in their manufacturing processes rather than waiting. He cited that specific example. Then fourth and finally, being data-driven. This is a non-negotiable. Jeff was citing the necessity of having a shift in culture and values, technology being the vehicle that can drive the future of business and mindset across the organization being the fuel. He gave a great example about leaders that are asking, hey, what is our AI strategy and the ones that are actually taking action on it? Those are the ones that have a technology and cultural foundation that are able to do that type of thing. So that was my first takeaway. Second, I thought Habib summed this up pretty nicely. A smart manufacturing leader has enough of an understanding to know what's possible. They're not just applying some digital tools or making some random acts of digital, as he called it. They're thinking big. They're looking at the end-to-end -end work process across the enterprise, and they know how to ask the right questions of the right people to implement the technology to fulfill their vision step-by-step. -step. As a podcaster, I know the importance of asking the right questions. Maybe that's why this resonated with me, but nevertheless, I thought Habib summed up smart manufacturing leadership very well during that segment. Third, this isn't just about leadership. I mean, I think this is something everyone needs, but the emphasis on data again and again and again. Olivia mentioned how it needs to be moving to the right people. Sudarsan brought up making decisions end-to-end -end with data. Jeff, Sanjeev, it literally came up in every conversation. It's about leveraging the data that's already there, not just limiting it to decisions impacting the production floor. I would be asking yourself at all times, can this data with the right context and analytics get me closer to my goal? That was my third takeaway around data. And then fourth, a smart manufacturing leader knows when and how to start looking at the technology and the architectures. Olivia summed this up there at the end. First, a leader needs to have the vision. 
you should be looking for incremental changes, particularly at brownfield existing sites. And when you have that, leverage institutes like SESME and leverage existing architectures. So those are my four takeaways. One, leaders need to set the right technology and cultural foundation for smart manufacturing. Two, leaders need to be able to ask the right question and have the vision. Three, it's all about data. And four, leverage your resources and know when to start looking at the technology and the architectures. Don't reinvent the wheel when you don't need to. Anyway, that's it for this week. A couple final announcements before we wrap this up. I do want to say thank you to Sesame for making this episode possible. You heard Olivia say it right at the end one final time. Leverage institutes like Sesame to get you in touch with the right people and get you on the right path to enable digital transformation and turn your operation into a smart manufacturing operation. I also want to say a big thank you to South Tech and SME for also making this episode possible. And I should remind you that if you liked what we discussed in this episode and you want to be a part of conversations like this in the future, you do have the opportunity to do that on June 4th through 6th. 2024 for next year's smart manufacturing experience. There's a link over on the show notes page, and I hope you can join SME and SESME for the next round of this event. Finally, if you want to take part in conversations like this digitally in our manufacturing happy hour industry community, join that group at manufacturinghappyhour.com community. That takes you straight to our private LinkedIn group. If you request to join, Make sure you're connected with me. Send me a connection request with a message saying you want to join. That way I know to let you in. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for sticking around. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.